The following podcast is a Clutch Media production. Welcome to They Get It. My name's Kelsey, and my co-host Emma and I love direct-to-consumer brands. Whether it's an amazing customer experience or a really killer social strategy, this podcast will feature the brands and founders who just get it. Any woman who listens to this podcast is going to hear (laughs) the problem of torn and ripped pantyhose, and it's just going to resonate. So I don't think there's any shock in how successful Sheertex has been as a company. For anyone that's not already familiar, Sheertex is the company that manufactures the strongest shears and pantyhose in the world. From regular to thigh high to shorties to socks, they actually take the same technology in Kevlar, literally bulletproof vests, and distill it down into something that can be worn every day like tights. It's insane. The technology behind it is crazy. And then if that's not enough, Catherine Holmet, the founder, is a serial entrepreneur and just like it feels like everything she touches turns to gold. I know she wouldn't say that, but even thinking back to her early days starting a company called Shop Locket, eventually selling that to a huge manufacturing company, starting a, a new venture called Female Funders, where she ed- educates women on how to angel invest. And now with Sheertex, you'll see it's not going to take very long for you to realize. She doesn't have to have all the pieces figured out in order to take a jump. And I think that is what is what made her such a successful entrepreneur. And it's really inspiring. It's so inspiring. And like the way she's scaled sheer text and the numbers and like how quickly that's happened, it just blows me away. Do you have some of those numbers, Kels? Oh, do I ever. Okay, so this was back, she started in 2017. And within the first two years, she went from $160,000 per month in sales to $2 million a month in sales. Like, come on, that doesn't happen for two people that have been around the D2C world for as long as Emma and I have. This is like, this is truly special. It is. Absolutely is. And not only is just what she's accomplished so incredible, but also think of how much waste is saved when you just have to buy one pair of pantyhose. Yes, you invest a little bit more, but they never rip. So you're not throwing out 20, 30, however many pairs a year, um, depending how how much you wear them. I think that's just such a cool byproduct of what she's built. Um, Yeah. So that's really interesting. And I think in this episode, we all, you know, you always hear entrepreneurs need to have grit and determination. Her stories are the perfect example of what that is in action. And I think it, it it's so inspiring. And it also like helps you realize like, oh, you got to have a lot of at bats. You got to create your own luck, as she says. Um, so that's incredible. And then later on in the episode, we get more in depth and really tactical on what the funding fundraising process looks like and uh, things you can do to make that more successful for yourself. So, so much goodness in this episode. Let's get into it. Let's do it. Welcome back to another episode. Today, we've got Catherine with us, who is the founder and CEO of Sheertex, um, and she's also a serial entrepreneur. You've got a lot of background. So first of all, Catherine, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here today. Uh, we are super excited as well. Would love to start off with some background. Tell us about not only Sheertex, but your ventures before that as well. 
Yeah, of course. So my current venture, Sheertex, makes the world's strongest pantyhose. Uh, if I were to hand you a pair and say, try to rip these, you wouldn't be able to rip them. They're that strong. And we've taken ballistic grade materials, miniaturized them, done a whole bunch of things to make uh, the seemingly impossible possible. But um, before this, I actually came out of the software industry. So my first startup, which I started about a decade ago, um, was a company called ShopLocket. And we were an e-commerce platform, mostly for people doing pre-orders of products. And mm -hmm. I ended up raising about a million dollars in venture capital for that company. I sold it about two years after starting it. So it was a pretty, pretty quick run. Um, I sold it to a really large manufacturing company uh, called PCH International, and they're based out of Ireland, San Francisco, Shenzhen. I had the opportunity to really travel the world and learn about high-tech manufacturing. And at the end of my journey at PCH, and I was there for about two years, um, I had fallen in love with manufacturing, but I'd also become pretty jaded. I realized that there were so many people working on these products that were connected devices or different types of hardware things. And as smart as the people were, it felt like a lot of the work was technology for technology's sake, um, as opposed to necessarily solving a problem. And I knew I wanted to both invest in, but also work on products that I thought solved real problems. So I started doing a little bit of angel investing and pretty quickly realized that I was generally the only woman on the cap table, um, mm -hmm. so the only female investor. And I started talking to some of my friends and you know, an angel investment check can be sometimes as small as five to 10K. Mm -hmm. And I had friends who, when you bring up the topic, would think, oh, I could never do that. I don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars that I could invest, not really understanding um, some of the dynamics of earlier stage uh, angel investing and um, was able to bring friends that were qualified investors along on some different deals and realized there was so much power to getting women involved early stage in companies, both for inspiring those investors to do their own companies but and learning about these companies along the way, but also to get those entrepreneurs started. And mm -hmm. it was a female investor that got uh, me my first 10K for ShopLocket, and I wanted to pay that forward. And so I started an organization called Female Funders that was really all about educating women on how to write their first angel check, women in um, entrepreneurs and how to raise their first round of financing. Ended up writing a book for O'Reilly called um, Funded, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Raising Your First Round. And as fun as that whole journey was, after about, it was probably two years working on female funders, I just had the itch to mm -hmm. start something up again. And I ended up selling female funders to Highline Beta, um, which is a venture capital firm in Canada. And was then ready to really dive in to figure out my next venture. And I promise you, pantyhose was the last thing I thought I was <laughs> going to get into. Um, but I was actually working on um, a real estate idea of all things. I just bought my first home and I had really fallen in love with real estate. I'd moved to the middle of nowhere and my idea was that I was going to buy a resort and I was going to cut it up and I was going to make it like the world's first Airbnb resort. That oh, was my wow. idea. 
And I actually started getting my real estate license because I thought it would help me understand so that I'd be able to create a tech platform around this. And in the meantime, I had this little idea that maybe pantyhose shouldn't rip. But this was totally <laughs> hobby. It had nothing to do with what I thought I was going to do with my life. And it was just happening every night. I'd go online, first started just like watching YouTube videos and how are pantyhose made. And <laughs> it caught my attention that like, this is a product that sometimes half the population wears and yet it is so ridiculously broken. And I was like, okay, I've worked with smart people. Uh, there's gotta be people who know how to solve this. And the further down the rabbit hole I went, the more I realized that this was really not solvable with any of the fibers that existed in apparel. You just can't make them that fine and still have them be strong. But I also realized that most of the industry hadn't looked outside the industry to try to solve the problem. And I was like, well, what if we just went to you know, parts of the, the textile world that maybe aren't apparel, but they have really strong polymers. And I found my way through a whole bunch of polymers that didn't work by just like ordering fibers and then got to Sheertex, uh, Sheertex's polymer. And I made my first sample and I tell you it was the worst sample you've ever seen in your life. It looked <laughs> like cheesecloth, not pantyhose. It was oh, white. Yeah. It didn't stretch. It broke every machine. We put it on. But for some reason, and I think this is like the entrepreneur's delusion, I looked at this cheesecloth prototype six months into my Google researching while I'm already four months into my real estate project. Wow. I'm like, this is it. This yeah. is going to like change the world. And I knew, I was like, I'm going to solve the color problems. I'm going to solve the manufacturing problems. Oh, wow. I'm going to solve the stretch problems. And I dropped the real estate project. I incorporated what was called Cheerly Genius at the time. Mm -hmm. And I took this prototype out to what was at the time just my friends, people who had either been part of female funders or that I'd met in my last company, thinking that fundraising was going to be easy because like I wrote a book on this. I had friends who were angel <laughs> investors. Like I've already raised a million bucks. And they looked at me like I was freaking insane. Wow. Like, oh my gosh. But I'll give them the credit. They believed in me. And I was able to cobble together, and it was literally cobbling together, 250000 And we were able to make it a little bit further on our prototypes. We finally got them to be in color, which was really hard. Um, and then we ended up getting into Y Combinator. And I'll kind of cut the story there. Uh, two <laughs> years later, we had a product. Um, since then, we've grown to over 175 people. So um, oh, from wow. back then to today, it's about three and a half years. So uh, it's been quite the crazy ride. So I'm happy to dig into any part of that. But that's a little bit of the, the backstory on how I get here today. Yeah. I mean, the overview is amazing, but you're not getting off that easy. We have a bunch <laughs> of questions about that. I want to take it way back. And one thing you didn't even call out um, when you were sharing your story is who tipped you off that maybe uh, an e-commerce platform would be a good move? I've heard on other podcasts that it might be a certain famous someone. <laughs> yeah. I um, So I got into the entrepreneurship world 
really young. Like when I was just coming out of high school, um, I started by just planning conferences for entrepreneurs. I would interview lots of entrepreneurs. And back in 2008, I helped plan a conference called Impact. And I was chairing the conference and we were looking for entrepreneurial speakers. And one of my friends was a Ruby on Rails developer. And he's like, there's this cool guy who has this startup that has some cool technology based out of <laughs> Ottawa. You should meet him. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, what? whatever. Sure. We need another speaker. Um, And so Toby Lukey from Shopify ended up speaking at my 2008 event. So I met Toby back then, but our paths crossed again a bit more significantly two years later um, when I kind of by happenstance uh, ended up at his house um, over the holidays. And he was at that point to 2010, there were maybe 20 people. I might get that wrong, but mm-hmm. yeah. really small. Um, and they were just launching the Shopify theme store. And I heard him talking about this. He was telling us about, you know, the theme store seems interesting. We don't have very many themes in it, but there's maybe promise to it. And I went back and I was like, you know what? I should try launching a theme in the Shopify theme store. And I was not a developer at the time, but I had a lot of friends who were from all of my time working, you know, around entrepreneurs. And I'd become um, kind of a, uh, I'd call it an honorary student of the University of Waterloo. I think I drove down there every other day because I just thought the yep. students there were cooler, um, <laughs> doing more interesting things. Um, and I paid a friend to build a Shopify theme and it ended up taking off. We ended up selling a ton of it. I was handling all of the support, but Mm -hmm. at the time what I had realized was that these people that were using our Shopify theme often had another thing that was their website. So this was the era of, you know, shop.something.com, which was different than the main Mm -hmm. website. And it was just crazy to me that, they both looked so, so different. And I had this idea, what if you could turn Shopify into a plugin that could just go on anyone's existing website rather than have to be this separate thing? And I actually tried pitching it to Shopify and they're like, no, it doesn't really fit in with our our dev roadmap. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, But I just, I thought there was something there. So started working on a prototype, ended up applying to Y Combinator, um, not even getting an interview with that startup. Oh, wow. And then I ended up um, hearing that one of the partners from YC, this is back in 2011, was going to be in Waterloo. And right before um, this event um, that the partner was going to be in Waterloo, my sort of co-founder who had been working on the idea with me backed out because we didn't get into YC. They didn't really want to work on the idea anymore. My boyfriend also broke up with me the night before. And I had quit my job two days earlier because I didn't want YC to be what determined whether I did this. I was like jobless, co-founderless, and boyfriendless. But I decided that I was going to drive to Waterloo. And I lived in Toronto at the time. I was going to find this YC partner. I was Mm going to convince them that I deserved an interview. And um, what ended up happening is that I had a friend who was like, oh, I'll totally get you in front of them. I'll get you in front of them. And then 5 p.m. comes around and this friend comes out to me and they're like, sorry. So they already left for today, but they'll be back tomorrow. And I didn't live in Waterloo. So I had to end up getting in my car and driving back to Toronto, going to sleep and coming back the next day to like try this all again. 
And the next day, I think it got to like 4 p.m. And I saw this partner like leaving the building to go catch their plane. And I was like, this is not happening again. And I followed them out into the hallway and gave this like hallway pitch of what I was trying to build. And they're like, okay, this is kind of cool. Like, I'll see what I can do. And got a call the next day that we'd gotten an interview and ended up kind of pairing back up with my my co-founder at the time, flying down to Mountain View, doing the interview. And now this is going to like sound like such a depressing end. We didn't get in. But honestly, what it did is it just it invigorated me. The whole fact that I was able to make something happen by getting in my car and being like stubbornly determined, the air in Mountain View, honestly, it just like revitalized me. I got to Mm -hmm. meet all of these incredible entrepreneurs and I just got this energy that I didn't have before going through that whole process and came back my co-founder ended up deciding to not do the idea. Um, so I was kind of back to square one, but a new friend that I had made, Heather Payne, uh, came over to kind of drink my sorrows away when I got back from YC. And um, we'd only known each other for three months. And she looked at me and she's like, you know what? I'm going to invest. I'll put in 10K. And I looked at her like she was crazy. Wow. Um, I was like, okay, like we're definitely going to have to talk tomorrow when the wine is worn off. Uh, <laughs> but sure enough, the next day she was like, no, I really do want to invest. And I think that was, you know, probably a third of the money she had to her name in the world. Wow. And she was putting it into me. And that, again, it was just this series of things that I was like, okay, like, I can do this. Whether whether those things actually ended up making the difference, it was the belief in me that I think at the end of the day really just made mm-hmm. me want to do this for real. And uh, eventually we got into an accelerator in Toronto. And from there we raised um, our first round of financing and I found um, a new co-founder uh, to continue the venture with me. I wow. hear... I hear one theme and like partially from what you've just shared and also the other research I've done on your story, Catherine, it seems like every single box you step into opens up all of the other boxes, the potential options that you can take on next. And I think this is a a life lesson. If we can just pause and call this out for the audience. It's like, if you weren't co-chairing those events, you wouldn't have met Toby, which wouldn't have introduced the Shopify theme, which wouldn't have introduced the hardware company, which wouldn't have introduced YC. And then if we hear later in your stories, revisiting YC. And I just think this is such a life lesson that you can't even plan two steps ahead because you have no idea what that next step is going to unlock. A hundred percent. And I think that one of the other things that I've like, my story, when you hear it, sounds so much like happenstance, I'd say. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, like you had this happen and then that led to this and then that led to this and then that led to this. What you don't hear are the 99 things that I did that led nowhere. Wow. Like the people mm. that I like, I Toby was at that conference. But you know how many people I had speak? Like it was like a hundred people, and mm. I had to get to know all of those people, and I invested in all of those relationships. And like, do you know how many like things like driving down to see that partner I've done in my life? Like so, so, so many. And it ends up like looking backwards, like it's this perfect story of everything lining up. But I think that the way that you create that luck let's say it and I think um, my combinator has an interesting way of talking about luck 
you create surface area for luck, mm. right? Yeah. If you do enough things that could make you lucky, you're going to get lucky. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that's very much been like, I try so many things and most of the things I do lead nowhere. Um, but I go at them with all the enthusiasm that that could be the thing. Because like you said, you never know. And generally, I don't know till years later, whether and there's probably a lot of things that I did 10 years ago that I still don't understand how they're going to affect me in 10 years. Right. Um, but it's all of these little micro investments. Mm-hmm. Okay, I completely agree with that. It reminds me of Nick, who's the one of the co-founders of Midday Squares, who was on the podcast, and he was saying he's like, entrepreneurship is how many times are you willing to like fall flat on your face and get rejected and get turned down and like keep going? And it sounds like it's a similar story for you as well. Very, very much so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And as you were telling this story, something that I really don't know much about, so I would love like a dummies version of it, but what is exiting a company look like? Yeah. So I think I had basically no idea um, <laughs> going into the first uh, company that I sold. And I'm going to tell you the story behind it. And you're going to be like, oh, my gosh, it's another one of those stories where like everything perfectly aligned. But mm. I think it's important to, to frame in the like, I did many things like this that did not perfectly align. Um, <laughs> so what happened was I... My company, this embeddable commerce company, had morphed into really becoming the pre-order platform for people that were um, building hardware products. So think things like connected rings or connected heart rate monitors. That was the type of person using our platform. And most of these companies, this is back in 2012, 2013, were coming off of like Kickstarter or Indiegogo and they were looking for a place to continue to pre-sell um, while they were getting ready to you know manufacture and then actually really sell their product. So most of our customers, the main support that they needed was help manufacturing. They were in that sort of chasm in their business where they had to move from pre-orders to a a working prototype that they could ship to their customers. So we saw our job as their e-com platform to make them successful, to be able to provide them resources and knowledge about how they could make their product, make it better, make it faster, make it cheaper. Because that was a huge problem that people had. And I had started an interview series with hardware founders. I think I interviewed a hundred, more than a hundred hardware founders about their journey from pre-orders to shipping their product and then how they grew. And in all of these stories, um, China, manufacturing in China came up a lot, came up like almost every single conversation I was having. And I started to feel like a little bit of a fraud that I was giving this kind of advice that I was having all these conversations, but I had no on the ground understanding of what it meant to to manufacture in China. Um, So I decided on a whim that I would book a trip to Hong Kong, go visit Shenzhen, absolutely no itinerary. Um, Just felt like I needed to book this trip. I would figure it out. I'd get meetings on the books. I'd 
I'd do whatever it took to, to make this worthwhile. And at the same time, I was talking at a lot of events, um, trying to get the word out about our platform, trying to meet new customers. Most of these events were hardware events. And there was this, I think it was called Oh, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was a hardware hackathon. So there are a bunch of people mm -hmm. presenting all their hardware ideas and I was judging. And one of my friends was sitting with me on the panel and um, one of her friends was the other panelist. And after the panel was over, um, her friend invited her to a launch party for his hardware accelerator that he was launching. And uh, she's like, oh, Catherine, you should come along, like come to come to this launch party. And we go down the street to this launch party and it was Highway 1, which was the PCH accelerator in San Francisco, kind of their like grand opening in many ways in San Francisco. And um, the founder of PCH, who's normally based in Hong Kong, was in San Francisco for this launch party. And my friend had lived in Hong Kong for a little while. And when she was there, she had the chance to meet Liam Casey is his name. And she just loved Liam. And she's like, Catherine, he is so supportive of female founders. You have to tell him what you're working on. Like, it's so cool. It's going to be right up his alley. And I'm like, oh, like I really don't want to be that person who tries to talk to the most important person in the room. <laughs> and it's just like, uh, I don't know, it's kind of awkward. And she's like, no, you have to talk to him. And so I go and I had printed this book um, a couple months earlier, which was like a glossy, beautiful magazine quality um, printout of all these interviews that I had done. Mm -hmm. And I kind of brought this everywhere I went as a prop because it was a great prop. It looked fantastic and it really told the story of what we were trying to do. So I brought out this prop essentially and I'm like, this is what we do. These are the stories. And more than the platform, more than anything else, this book, this prop that I had built, <laughs> um, Liam just loved it. And he mentioned, you know, this is really cool, but I'm, I'm so sorry because like, I don't have much time. I have to get right back to Hong Kong and I, like, we don't, I don't really have time to meet. And I was like, well, funnily enough, I'm flying to Hong Kong tonight. And this was the trip that I had booked for no particular reason. And he's like, oh, amazing. Well, like, let's meet at my office in Shenzhen tomorrow. And no so way. I get on the plane that night. I fly to Hong Kong. I get there. I have no idea how to use public transit. And wow. I later came to learn that most people have drivers when they do this for business between Hong Kong and Shenzhen. That was certainly not me. I was public transiting it all the way. Turns out it's like over an hour and border oh crossings. Gosh. I totally under estimated how complicated this would be. Then um, I got across the border and my phone didn't work and I couldn't load my maps and I couldn't understand anything and I couldn't connect to Wi-Fi. Um, I was five hours late, I think, wow. um, for this meeting. And luckily his like flight had gotten delayed to Kuala Lumpur so he could meet. And we ended up sitting down and having just a great chat about what he was doing at PCH and what I was trying to do. And there was no real end to that meeting. It was not a about acquiring the company at all. Um, but he mentioned that he was working on opening this office in San Francisco, which they did open. They opened just a couple months later. And I, he didn't like give any opening for future conversations, but I from there ended up 
like emailing his assistant and was like, he mentioned this space. I'd love to host an event at the space. Who can, who can you connect me with? And eventually got connected to the person who was running that space, who happened to also be the person that was running their e-com strategy. And within like 30 days, the two of us working on this event realized that where I was trying to take ShopLocket was you know, what they wanted to do with a lot of their strategy um, for PCH and e-com. And it was within 60 days of that that we announced the acquisition. So oh. it was like just such an intense period for the for the 60 days uh, following that. But um, I'm sure it's one of those stories, just like the last one where you're like, oh my gosh, how does that happen? Um. <laughs> no kidding. 60 days is not a ton of time from like literally just having a conversation with someone to all of a sudden handing over the keys to your company. What did you have to do in that time frame to prepare the business for sale? So in terms of preparing the business for sale, not much. I'd say that the bigger thing that we had to do was get to know uh, the folks over at PCH and they had to get to know us and our business. Um, so what ended up happening was, I think it all kicked off with like a meeting at a pub and it was just like a normal lunch or whatever it was supposed to be. And um, I thought, okay, well like this, they're like seeming very interested. Maybe they want to invest or something like that. And um, it came up, well, no, not invest, like potentially acquire it. I'm like, whoa, uh -huh. okay. Um, and the next step after that was me getting on a plane to Ireland and I'd never been to Ireland. Um, to meet with Liam and Liam and I had only really met that one time um, and ended up spending, I think it was about three days in Ireland um, locked in a boardroom and then, you know, great, great dinners and stuff, but locked in a boardroom, mm -hmm. um, just sharing everything about what we were working on, them sharing everything about what they were thinking um, and really making sure that there was a fit and that there was alignment and, once that part was done, um, what generally happens is you get some sort of letter of intent that's like, hey, right. um, we would love to buy your company. This is what the price will be. This is, you know, how it will work. This is when we want to close. Um, and then you go back and forth over that letter of intent. For us, I think we went back and forth for a couple of weeks. Um, and then once that is finalized usually most and this is very similar to raising any round of financing um once you've gotten to either a term sheet or letter of intent finalized most of the material deal terms are already figured out and it goes from a problem for let's call it the business folk mm -hmm. um, to a problem for the lawyers and the accountants right. and yeah then you get both in a round of financing or if you're selling your company, you get a massive due diligence list um, ah. that you need to go through and provide all of this information. Um, and I will say that the due diligence list for selling your company is a hell of a lot more intense than the due diligence list for uh, raising fun funding. Really? I remember being literally locked in a boardroom with a consultant that we had hired on to help um, us just with the sale for five days. And then that was just to go through the due diligence list. And once we'd gone through the due diligence list, we were locked in the room 
again for another five days to go through the legals. Um, And I'm not joking that this was from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., where we went through every contract <laughs> that the company wow. had ever signed, every everything. And um, I honestly was so stressed. I was physically ill yeah. um, going through this process. We had set also a really aggressive date to try to get it all done by. And there was a really hard deadline on the date because um, PCH was doing a really big event and we wanted to announce it at the big event, uh. but the event was happening on a specific day. Um, and I think like generally that was good. It made us not fall off track, but it was incredibly stressful. Yeah. Um, Selling uh, female funders was like way less intense because yeah, it was way less money. There were no investors. It would yeah. just be mostly just like handing an asset over for someone else to be the custodian on. So that can be done really simply. But um, when there's a corporation and there's IP and there's all of these different things, um, it's quite intense. And I'm sure like ours was a pretty small transaction relative to a lot of different acquisitions. And I I can only imagine it gets much more intense um, as uh, as the acquisitions get bigger. Wow. Yeah, I had no idea it was such an involved process, but as you explain it, it definitely makes sense. Um, I can't believe we're half an hour into the conversation and we haven't even barely touched on sheer text yet. <laughs> There's just so much good stuff. This is what happens when you have serial entrepreneurs on the show. There's just so many different things to speak to, but I'd like to pivot a bit into sheer text. Um, and the first thing that stuck out to me as I was you know, learning more about your company is something you often say that was the big question for you in starting SureTax was like, how have, how are self-driving cars a thing? How can, how's man been on the moon? But, um, but pantyhose still rip every time you wear them. The first thing that came to my mind is because it's a female, it's a product for females. Do you think that gender has a role in why this hasn't been invested in sooner? So... I think that's a it's a complicated question. I would say, knowing what I know now, I would probably have said yes when I started this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like I have gotten to know this industry a lot more since I started. And the truth is, almost every company doing this um, was run by men. And I think those men understood that this was a problem. Um, and... I think they were also, and I'm saying they as in like the whole industry of men running Mm -hmm. hosiery companies, I think they ended up finding themselves in an incredibly heated competitive market. And I think there is this um, general sense, oh, well, they were planning for planned obsolescence and it's better to sell people lots of products. Um, I think that certainly that would have deterred any one of these companies from really, really investing and figuring it out. But I think there were enough um, business people in this industry that if they really thought they could solve it, they would have solved it. Um, They knew it was a problem. They knew there was an opportunity, but I think it was just seen as impossible. It Mm -hmm. It was the kind of thing that doing things the way that they knew how to do them, sourcing from the people that they knew how to source from, um, running their factories the way that they knew how to run their factories 
using the polymers that they knew and understood on the machines they knew and understood, this was just actually not possible. Mm -hmm. um, and it really took me, I think, coming at this with no industry background mm -hmm. and really not taking any part of it for granted that allowed me to challenge things that maybe the industry had just seen as a given, right? Oh, yeah. It was just how it was done. So I I think that there were, yes, it's generally a male-dominated industry. There were some women in it, but I, even if you said it was all men running this industry, I don't think that they were purposefully not trying to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. it was just that it was not seen as solvable. Okay. Well, I mean, it makes perfect sense. You look at someone like a Ford and there's a reason that they're not Tesla, right? The incumbent isn't living or dying by innovation. And so they're not pushing the envelope like somebody who really has nothing to lose. There's another trend here, Catherine, where like you're not a software developer, yet you launch an e-com company. You're not, you know, a textile expert, yet you launch something that's completely innovative and disruptive in an industry that's been around for a long time. Talk to me a little bit about how you approach things you don't know. Yeah, I am an expert in nothing. Um, I I think that the thing, if I were to say like, what what is the common thread? What do I what do I do well? Or like, what would I try to do in the next thing that I start? Mm -hmm. Is I am. I, I sometimes compare myself, and actually this started because one of my ex-boyfriends, I think quite lovingly, um, said that I'm a cockroach. Like, you can't kill a cockroach. Like, even a nuclear disaster does not kill a cockroach. And you really need the explanation on that one because the title is not it. <laughs> um, but I, like, the more that I, like, that was years ago, like, eight years ago, and it's just, yeah. like, it's stuck with me as, like, like, the nicest thing anyone's ever said about me. Wow. It's like, yes, like, you, like, I am so stubborn, and I have so much grit, and, like, I see, I think I oversimplify things in my head, probably because I'm, you know, maybe not smart enough to hold all the complex pieces, but I, like, I'm, I may, like, I radically simplify things down to what I think are the most important pieces, and then, I am willing to have things not go well a whole bunch of times, but I'm going to find creative ways to get there in the end. And I'm incredibly like mission and goal driven and mm -hmm. I can create more energy in like a burst of time than most people. It doesn't mean that I am always energized, but I get really energized by short-term objectives wow. and I can put like endless energy if I feel like I'm doing it for a sprint or for something to get to a certain objective and um, challenging what people think is not possible, but can be, but that I think can just be achieved with like pure grit is usually mm -hmm. the type of thing that I will go after. Um, and I think that's probably the common thread behind yeah. what, I, what I've done. Mm -hmm. Well, the one thing about this is like, it's not cheap to go into R&D and try to repurpose Kevlar <laughs> and to make bulletproof pantyhose. Talk to us about the funding story behind getting the Sheertech's product. And then let's talk a little bit about the scaling funding story too. Yeah. So in the very early days, it didn't cost very much to get to, let's call it that cheesecloth prototype. Um, okay. I think maybe 
maybe in materials and R&D, it had cost me $3,000 to get to oh, that wow. Um, I had spent other money, like I'd hired a consultant that was helping me. I'd had someone work on branding that you probably could have avoided spending. Like it was un- not necessary, but I did it. And maybe that brought the grand total up to like $10,000. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was not very much money. And I spent that all personally at the time, but it was, it was not that much. And I'd already sold the other company. So like I was able to afford to do this like early stage and I probably could have even afforded to do like more stages for it. But I did very much want to, I don't know. I wanted to have other people on board, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. This sounds kind of silly. Like I knew this was going to be a venture backed company. I, wanted to prove that this was investable. I wanted to learn from other people in the process of pitching to understand if they thought there was a market opportunity here as well. Um, And that's probably why I went out and did the angel round. I knew there was going to be money to be spent, but I think I was sharing the risk. I was trying to learn from other investors. I knew this was going to take a lot of money eventually, so I may as well raise money now um, and get some people on my side that can help bring more funding. Wow. In, um, I wouldn't necessarily uh, advise that for anyone else. I think, like, probably if I were to do something again, I would try to go without funding for as long as humanly possible. Um, but I think I had just come to terms with the fact that this was going to take a lot of money pretty early on. Like, to get one spool of this fiber at the time cost me two thousand dollars. Like, um. there was no way I thought I was going to be able to set up manufacturing, buy the machines, buy the fiber without raising money. So I started it fairly early on um, and then um, ended up getting into YC for this one. I Mm -hmm. think I only applied to YC as like trying to prove to myself that I could get in after (laughs) having not gotten in like six years earlier. Um, Ended up going to YC. So at that point, we would have raised, you know, 250,000 plus 120 from YC. And I had done like back of the napkin math and there was no intelligence to how I did this back of the napkin math. And I decided I needed $4 million to start our factory. It was like, it was a guess. I'm, I'm naughty. Like I'm, I'm trying to remember how I came up with those numbers, but it was I love like, it. whatever it was, was like really bad math. Um, and, but YC wouldn't let us go out and fundraise um, for anything more. I think, than a million. So it was kind of like the ever expanding round of financing. Um, I just like, we would just keep increasing the cap on the round so that like the valuation cap um, doing a safe at the time. So we started with raising, I think it was like 600K. And then by the end of it, we raised my $4 million. Oh my gosh. Whatever miracle happened that ended up being the right amount. Um, Probably it's just that like the money ran ran out and then I raised more. So by like de facto, it was the right amount. Um, but uh, it allowed us to make our first run, set up our first factory. And then um, we ended up shipping our first product 
Uh, it was in December of, I think it was 2018. And this was to our Kickstarter backers. And I shipped it out the door and I was so excited. We'd been working on this for two years now. I had been the only one, myself and maybe two or three people in the office, been the only ones that had ever worn this. I had pitched investors, but like I'd never let them take the product home because we feared IP risk. So our sample set was really small. And I remember it was Christmas day and we got back our first reviews and they were totally mediocre and i was like oh my god like that's it this is never gonna work um and i went to my husband i was like you know that was a good two years but it's over and he looked at me and he's like you're crazy like you're giving up at like Step one, you He's like, your cockroach, where are you? <laughs> you shipped your first product. You have to figure out how to make it work. It's like yeah. shipping software and then being like, oh, V1 didn't work. Like Bingo. you ha- can make a V2. I was like, oh, okay, I guess so. Um, and the team rallied. We did a whole bunch of third-party tests and we changed a bunch of fibers and tested a bunch of things. And like within six weeks, we had solved it. And we created the basis for what is essentially the ShareText product today. And the reviews were fantastic. It was so much better. Like there were some real problems. It was like with that, if I were to show you what that first product looked like, you'd be like, you tried to sell this. But it was, it was um... so much better. And then I got it in my head and I got it in my head from asking a bunch of different people, but I was okay for a company to, I just raised 4 million for a company to raise $10 million, which is what Mm I, again, like made up as what I thought was the next amount of money that we needed. How much sales do you think that company would need to be doing? And I pulled out of people that essentially $250,000 a month in sales was the smallest amount they thought a company could be doing to go out and raise a $10 million round. Wow. So I was like, okay, I need to do $250,000 a month in sales. And that January, we uh, it was our first month. So, and I only had like four months of runway. Well, not four months, four months until I like really needed to be fundraising. So I think I had maybe like eight months of runway or something like that. And so I was like, okay, I have four months to get to over 250,000 a month in sales. And my strategy as the entirety of our marketing team was to do something every single day, that would grow sales. Like it was literally that simple and it had to be new. It had to be different and it had to have the potential to like double our sales in that day. And there were some pretty basic things in there from, well, like one, we went to CES, we got a PR, we um, launched a couple new products. We tried our first sales. We started email marketing. We started Facebook advertising and it failed. And then we tried Facebook advertising again and it did better. And we (laughs) um, ended up like going into new categories like we launched a hosiery short we launched nudes we did a kickstarter to launch ultra shares and we did all of these things in this like 90 day period um because i had this insane goal that we had to grow from zero to two hundred fifty thousand a month in like four months um (laughs) and we pulled it off and wow with that managed to raise $10 million. And it was in large part because um, we went through a program called CDL, the Creative Destruction Lab, 
And um, a bunch of investors kind of saw our growth over the course of the year that CDL was running. So they saw us before we shipped product, and then they saw us when we'd grown to 250000 a month. And this group of investors at CDL, and it's, it's a really wonderful program. I highly recommend it. Um, but they had actually kicked us out of the program in the hmm. first um, session. And it was only like later that day that they're like, oh, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't kick them out. And they decided to bring us back. And then we end up being, I'd say like in large part, one of the bigger success stories that came out of that like little cohort, at least at the time. Why? Um, and yeah, why kick you out? Um, Cause they didn't see it. No one, no no one thought it could be anything. Yeah. They just thought it wasn't a great idea. Couldn't scale. Direct to consumer is hard. Like, who really wants pantyhose? Are Maybe you they kidding? should just license the technology. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, okay, on that note, this is something Emma and I were talking about. Why only D2C? Because it's really, really expensive to make. Um, oh. Our fiber is well, in the early days, orders of magnitude more expensive than nylon. Today, order of magnitude more expensive than nylon. And um, we believe through all the work that we're doing that we'll eventually be able to get this product to cost the same as a pair of regular hosiery. And that's our end objective. Um, I think it's probably going to take us five years to get there. Um, But no, like when you order a pair of sheer techs today, it's, it's like $50 in cost um, yeah. that is going into that product. Um, and we're, we're working really hard and it's going down really, really quickly as we scale up. But um, we basically created the market for this and we're scaling up the production. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we scale it up, we believe we're going to be able to you know, hit parity with nylon. But wow. it was really hard to go retail or license this material uh, when it's that expensive because there's no room for anyone else's margin. Exactly. Right. Well, I have to I have to believe that when you're raising money for a product when, with thin margins to at least start out, was that a point of contention with a lot of investors? Oh yeah, everyone thought everyone thought I was crazy. Always, yeah. always thought I was crazy. Like some investors would be like, "Okay, well, we got to sell it for two hundred dollars." Like, no, like I can't. Oh my gosh. It's wrong. Imagine. I'd rather mm-hmm. like sell it and lose money. Yeah. Um, in order to to get it going, I remember saying in the very early days of this, you know, I think we can get it on the market for like forty five or fifty dollars. Um, and then when like push came to shove, I think I launched it at one hundred and forty five dollars. Mm-hmm. Then it was at ninety nine, and we we're trying to figure out our place. And I actually had an investor, um basically take their money back because when what? we launched they're like you'll never be able to make this company work at this price and I was like okay uh we're trying oops um, yeah <laughs> it's a little late now <laughs> um but uh, and I I gave them their money back um and it was fine um but that was that was I think within the first couple of days that was back in 2018 during our kickstarter wow hmm. okay so Another thing that I heard you mention somewhere, maybe it's another podcast, is that you think the like process of fundraising and having a good process and pitch is more important than having a good product. Can you give some more detail around that? What goes into a good pitch and process? Yeah, and I think that this learning came really early on in my life as an entrepreneur because 
Um, so many of my friends were entrepreneurs. I had a platform that was servicing entrepreneurs to help them launch their companies. And I saw a lot of round of rounds of financing, like whether it was through my friends or whether it was through our clients. Um, obviously I followed all the blogs and all the everything. And it struck me, this was way back earlier in my career to like, you know, 2012, 2013, like, why did this company raise 100 million? And these seem to be their metrics. And then this company raised 5 million at way lower valuation. And these are their metrics. Like, I don't get it. Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Like, this seems like a better business or better fundamentals or like, what is going on here? And I would dig into it and I'd realize that, you know, the one that had better terms had a more competitive process Hmm. Um, or the one that had better terms, um, they were buddies with someone that worked at the VC firm. Totally. Or um, the one that had better terms was in a hot market um, and that market was just getting higher valuations or the one that got better terms had gone through Y Combinator, whereas the other company hadn't gone through Y Combinator. And like when you hear all of these things, none of these things have anything to do with the fundamentals of that business. Mm -hmm. But the swing that those things can have on a company's valuation is massive. And when I started to understand that, I started to realize that, you know, it wasn't just about the, the business that you were building, there were a hell of a lot of other factors going into how that company was going to raise, how it was going to get valued. Um, and I think this goes at all parts of a process from um, raising money to um, selling a company. But I also think, you know, I used to be really angry about this. I used to um, think that this was just crappy that these worst companies were getting way better valuations and how unfair is that and then I realized that one of the key skills to being an entrepreneur is sales and Mm -hmm. that your ability to get someone excited about what you're doing and to paint the picture about the opportunity that's not just good for selling investors that's how you sell customers that's how you sell employees and all of a sudden I realized that wait maybe I shouldn't be so angry that these people are getting these higher valuations because maybe they actually have a skill that is you know making them a higher likelihood of success over that other CEO who doesn't understand the sales process, who doesn't understand how to sell a big vision, doesn't understand because maybe that company is going to be less successful because of it. And that got me really thinking about rather than poo-pooing this world in which salesmanship, like, got better valuations and being really resentful Mm -hmm. to embrace it as a skill that great CEOs have that allow their companies to grow bigger and faster through venture funding, through customers, through B2B partnerships, through PR. And all of a sudden, I didn't feel shitty about it anymore. I felt kind of empowered by it. And then when I like YC, I think, does a great job at, you know, showing you how to run a, a proper sales funnel for running a, a fundraising round and you know, how to write an investment memo, how to do a pitch deck, how to time, like, you know, going after all the investors, giving them all the same information on the same day and running a great funnel. And um, 
all of that I think is really great. It's tactical. Check out the YC Series A um, blog post on on some of these different tactics. Um, But I think more so it was me first embracing that this was not dirty, that this was powerful. Totally. Well, they say anybody can sell. It's just how will how hard are you willing to work to refine those skills? And I think that's a really powerful realization. We're going to link to the um, the blog posts in the show notes of this episode. But if I'm a brand and I'm at the stage where you know sales are consistent, I think I'm ready to get to the next level and I need funding. What are the first couple of things that I should think about? Yeah. So if if you so. I think YC does a great job of explaining the Series A process. So I'm going to kind of explain it as if you were just starting your Series A process. Okay, um, perfect. But so let's say that you are three months away um, from thinking that you want, you know, to be out there pretty actively fundraising or maybe even have a term sheet. The first thing um, that I'd recommend doing is that you start writing uh, an investment memo. Um, And this is something that probably ends up being about 10 pages long. um, And it clearly defines what you're doing, the market opportunity, your traction to date, your team. Um, There's a whole bunch of other things that that YC recommends you put in this, but essentially you're writing a document. And the value to writing this document, for me at least, wasn't having it to be able to share with investors. It clarified my thinking so much around Hmm. what is our business? What is the market opportunity? How big is that opportunity? And by the time I got into investment meetings, I had really thought this through. And there were very few metrics about our company that I didn't know. There were very few things about our market that I wouldn't know. There were very few like obstacles that I hadn't at least thoughtfully, you know, gone through. And I think that there was just so much power in writing that through, sharing it with a close network of people, getting them to tear it apart, make it better, um, and end up with this thing that felt really powerful. And Mm -hmm. I'd say was mostly powerful in making our business successful, let alone just getting money in. Um, Then while you're doing that, um, go have coffee with a lot of people that could eventually put money into the company. Huge. so the the difference here is not to make those first meetings in let's call it this first month um, yes. about pitching. You're not sharing your pitch deck. In fact, you're, if they're asking for it, say, oh yeah, like we're gonna start raising in you know a month or six weeks, and I'll, I'll share it then. Would still love to grab coffee to catch up if you're open to it. And in that, like you're just telling the high level, you're getting them excited, um, but you're building a little bit of a relationship. And that funnel of people should probably be like 50 people long at least. Oh, wow. Have like 50 coffees. Um, And you're going to get a lot better at those coffee meetings. You're going to feel like who seems interested, who doesn't. Those that seem like really interested, they go on to the next phase. That is when you're actually ready to kick off your fundraise, you're going to send them the info that you prepared. So it's probably going to be your investment memo. It's going to be your pitch deck. Um, And uh, the other thing that uh, YC had us do was um, it was like your three main selling points. It's like Mm -hmm. you can only get 
three things across to someone in a 30 second elevator pitch, what are those three things? It usually like the first one is something like something that very clearly says what you do. The second one is like your highest level traction number. And then the next one is maybe like the big vision for what you're doing, mm. but these like really clear bullet points. And so your email probably looks like these three bullet points that are super attention grabbing. Um, and then you have your uh, memo and your pitch deck attached and you're setting up your next meeting, which is now like a formal pitch meeting. Um, and I apologize if I'm getting the order wrong. Maybe you do the pitch meeting and show it and then follow up later. I'm not exactly sure the order. Yeah, um, okay. but the idea here is you're going to the next meeting and this is where you're going to give more detail. Mm-hmm. Um, you might have, let's say, 20 of these meetings that come out of your 50 coffees. Um, if you're lucky, those 20 meetings will whittle down to maybe three um, full partner meetings. And a full partner meeting means that person loved it. They were super excited. And now they're pulling in the rest of their group, usually on a Monday morning, um, mm-hmm. to see your pitch. Um, and if you're lucky, then one of those three or maybe three of those three um, will give you a term sheet for a funding wow. round. Yeah. Um, if you're like me, none of those people oh, will no. give you it. You have to go through the process a little bit again. Yeah. Um, and hopefully you can get more interest from those early coffees. But um, I think that the one thing that is really important to understand here is that you only need one, right? Yeah. At the end of the day, like you can get a million different no's, but it's okay because like you really just need that one person. And mm-hmm. you might have to dig a little harder to like find the right fit and the person that's going to get it. Um, but it, it is totally okay that a ton of people are saying no because really at the end of the day, you just need that one person. And um, ultimately, Um, We ended up going to like the final day of CDL, the Creative Destruction Lab. We're able to show all of our traction throughout the year, got a ton of interest from those people who had actually had, you know, 10 months of watching us work and watching us grow. And we were able to turn that into a great funding round. And I think that this highlights that, you know, as much as this is how you would start it if you were three months ahead of needing to raise money, it is so, so, so much better if you can build up some of those relationships over the course of like a year. Mm -hmm. And what I would, what I, I can't remember who said it, but um, I think it's really powerful. Investors um, like can't invest in dots. They have to invest in in lines. Um, So like if you just see them and all they see is like one point in time, it's really, really hard for them to invest in that. But if you can create a bunch of dots over time that are all trending in the right direction, then an investor can is like way more likely to invest yeah. in that line than a dot. That is so powerful. And there was another quote. I don't know if it's your your thought, but you were um, quoted saying it. If you approach an investor looking for money, you'll get advice, usually all the things that are wrong. However, if you approach an investor looking for advice, you'll end up getting money. And I think that is a fundamental truth. If you're building these relationships for the sake of the relationship, not what can I get out of someone, that's just like a human dynamic, right? Even think about friendships. You can tell the people who are just using you versus the people who just show up and want to establish that relationship. It's not rocket science. Exactly. And I think that the one thing I will add to that, um, particularly for any women like me that are listening, is I'd say before YC and before the Series A program, I interpreted that as don't ask for money. Like, oh, interesting. Dirty. And I think what I've realized is that you have to invest in relationships 
not looking for anything early on, but when you're starting a fundraise, you do have to announce that you're starting a fundraise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that was something I was very uncomfortable doing because it felt like I was setting myself up to fail. Like if I said I was going to raise money and then I don't, like maybe I'm just a failure. And if I just oh, never wow. tell anyone that I want their money, then, you know, maybe it's going to be okay. Um, and previous to that, I, I don't like even, you know, going through YC Demo Day, you like say you're raising money and that's just, it's kind of a socialized norm. Um, my previous time raising money, we were raising money, but I never had to decide. We were like, it just felt kind of natural, but the way that YC put like fundraising for a series A kind of made it okay that I was going to have to go out to people and say I'm raising money on a certain date and like it's okay I am like leaning all the way into this and it might backfire I might not do it but that's okay um so that's the one thing I'd maybe add hmm I think that's such good advice. I love it. And just knowing, like, I mean, the landscape has changed a lot in the last couple of years and seeing all of the different funding options, whether it's angel, equity, rev share, whatever it might be. If you were to go back and do it all again, do you think you would go the venture cap route that soon? I don't think that there's another way that we could have done what we've done. Um, I think I would maybe design a business that didn't need everything. (laughs) Just scrap the whole thing. (laughs) Um, And I think that like, yeah, there's so much of this that I think was harder than I probably ever anticipated when I was was starting out. But um, no, I I wouldn't have done this any differently. I think there's things that I would have done differently that I think could have gotten us further faster or better valuations at different times. I probably like given perfect information at the beginning could have done a little bit more with a little bit less, but doesn't mean that I would have said that we shouldn't raise the 60 million that we've raised today. I think I just more so on the actual, how do we do it? Probably would have found some shortcuts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And I like that you're looking back with no regrets because where you've ended up is Truly phenomenal. Um, I could keep asking you questions all day, Catherine, but we want to be respectful of your time. But we do have one question that we ask every guest, so I'd love to ask you as well. Obviously, we think you get it and you inspire us. Who do you think gets it? Oh, that's a great... Okay, well, this is going to be a bit of a bizarre answer to the question, Um, but I have been obsessed lately with the stories on how I built this and yeah I think Guy Raz like Mm -hmm. gets it yeah and Mm -hmm. it just I listen to it and I think part of it for me is therapy Mm -hmm. and it's just like yes like yes yes like it is that hard it is that and I think just as I hear him ask questions that most people don't ask. Um, I'm like, you get it. Like you're, you're pushing on all the right things and you just, you, you understand. And it's funny to give that as an answer because obviously, you know, he's an entrepreneur, but not in the same sense. Right. Um, But I, I just, I, when I, when I hear how he sees the world and how he talks to people, I just think he gets it. 
Yeah, the storytelling is unreal. And you're not actually, you're not the first guest to give Guy as their answer. So you're on to oh, something. Really? <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. it's not the weirdest response. But Catherine, I, yeah, like Emma said, we could go on for hours and hours and hours. This has been such a helpful conversation. I have so many things that I want to link out to in the show notes. And I'm just so grateful that you came to chat with us. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate you having me. And this has been a lot of fun. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you so, so much, Catherine. That was a longer episode than we typically do for They Get It episodes. But I have to say, the conversation was just too good. And there were too many lessons we couldn't stop. (laughs) And if I think about everything in there, obviously the show notes are going to be awesome for kind of distilling all that information. But I think the biggest takeaway for me is how she didn't talk about funding in terms of absolutes. And maybe I'm, you know, just kind of scarred from some of these conversations, but everyone, when they approach funding, it has to be this way and it's a hundred percent this way. And if it's not this way, then you're wrong. And I just feel like her advice was so approachable. And so the thing that stuck out for me was when Catherine was talking about, you know, starting relationships early, right? You don't need mm-hmm. to ask for money right away. You build relationships because you're seeking advice and you actually care about the relationship. But then when it comes time to raise money, don't sell yourself short. Don't do it under the table. Make sure that you're proud of what you're doing and that you leverage those relationships the way that you intended to. And don't think twice about it. I think that is such powerful advice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love it. And what she was saying too about creating your own luck really stuck with me. Obviously, when you have more at-bats, there's a better chance you're going to have success. But also, you know, what she was saying about you can get told no so many times. You just need one yes. And that doesn't, you know, just because people say no, it doesn't mean that you have a bad business. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be successful. And Mm -hmm. I'm so happy she didn't listen to those investors that told her it wouldn't be a business. Yeah. Um, But it's just such a good reminder. Like no one can determine your own worth except for you. Um, And so believe in yourself as cheesy as it is, but believe in yourself. You miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Okay. So with that, we will wrap up today's episode. Um, Leave us a review and let us know what your favorite part of this episode was. And we will see you next week. See you then. 